0: Welcome to the Behind the Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, R. Gupta. The reason
1: that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
0: This is a special edition of the podcast with co host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, Jeremy Schwartz. My co host is Warren Fines Professor. Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and The Future for Investors. I should note, a Mercer representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion today is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or affiliates. We have a really great show today in the studio. We have a welcome back guest, sort of joint host here, Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Wes, welcome back to our finance studio here. Jeremy, great to be here as always. Uh, Professor, we're going to start with you. Uh, just give some quick commentary on the markets. We had uh, it was at the end of the week here, we saw a little bit of drop of interest rates. Uh, a little bit, maybe disappointing numbers here this morning. Any thoughts on what's going on in the markets?
1: Yeah, I mean equities just continuing to hit new highs. I was we we uh, we had the CPI core uh, and overall just one tenth under expectation and you could see the way the bond traders were positioned because we had a huge drop in yields when when that number came out. And, and it reflected, of course, the Fed minutes that we got earlier in the week, which said that uh, there's quite a few members of the FOMC. They're still on the fence about deciding about a December rate uh, hike. And in fact, they mentioned the shortfall of inflation. So this uh this announcement today is another example of the shortfall inflation, puts a little bit more uncertainty into that uh Fed rate hike in December. Uh still of course uh a good two months plus away. So there's still gonna be uh an awful a lot of data. Uh retail sales were just about expected and we got analysts really thinking that third and fourth quarter are very near three percent GDP growth despite the hurricanes, which is really uh quite remarkable we also got a report that it may be very very soon uh when uh Donald Trump is going to announce the uh new head or if it is new of uh the uh chairman of the Fed um and i i think there's a strong possibility that we are uh going to get uh, an announcement next week and that of course is going to be a uh, huge in terms of uh uh, you know, impact on the markets and and uh, and uh, forward-looking uh, monetary policy. We also should say there's still a uh, yeah, market is going up, and I don't think that's over speculative. But I'm looking at Bitcoin, which uh, is at five thousand seven hundred dollars, new all-time high, surging. There's certainly a lot of speculation still in these cryptocurrencies, um, uh, but uh, and uh, who knows how that will end. But I, I, uh, I believe, given the interest rate picture and the fact that uh, we're not going to get an aggressive movement on there, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not scared of the stock price uh, increases that we've been seeing.
0: Very good. Uh, the other notable item this week, Professor, uh, we saw the Nobel Prize being awarded to Richard Thaler. I know you've collaborated with Thaler on some of his behavioral economics work back in in 1997. You guys wrote a piece on anomalies and uh, you know the equity risk premium. Um, any commentary you want to give on on Thaler?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I was I was really quite pleased to hear uh, him win it. I was actually a little surprised because when it, picked Bob Schuler five years ago, I thought that that was sort of it for behavioral. I actually thought that Schiller and Saylor would have been together a great pick for a year as forwarding it. But if they were not only in the finance area, but also just in the area of human behavior has talked about how we can uh, uh, capitalize on how people behave to get better outcomes in the financial arena, such as as as. Savings, 401k plans, and all the rest. So he has, he has had a big impact on on policy, and I think uh, I think it was a good choice by the Nobel Committee.
0: Very good. And and you guys had published a piece, and it said something about yeah. Uh, uh, the, it, it, it was published in 1997, and their closing quote said about check back with us 20 years later. Any any commentary about what? Uh,
1: yeah, that was I, I myself had forgotten that so I, I went back to the article we wrote, uh, which was called the Equity Risk Premium, published in the Journal of Economic Literature, uh, 1997. And we said we still thought stocks were going to beat bonds by a good margin, although not quite by as much as the long-term historical. Uh, and don't complain to us in the short run if it doesn't. Come back to us in 20 years. And, of course, 20 years is this year, right. um, uh uh 2017 and in fact uh you uh, uh, and i both did uh, a check and indeed uh stocks uh, uh did beat bonds bonds did extremely well because of the continual fall of, of interest rates but uh, stocks uh still had uh, by a wide margin uh the best return
0: so when you say again so stocks for the long run next 20 years that's that's your view stocks versus bonds You don't want to do that.
1: And and by a bigger margin, not that stocks are going to be a bigger margin. But, you know, when we in 1997, uh, uh, you know, the tips bonds were three and a half to four percent. Regular treasuries were six to seven. Now, of course, we we see treasuries at two and tips at uh, just about zero. So forward looking on bonds is certainly dismal. Forward looking on stocks. Uh, you know, I'm calling for five, five and a half percent real return, a little bit lower than the historical average, but still a, a very, very good margin.
0: So we'll check back with you in 2037, see if that's, <laughs> if that's right. I hope so. All right, <laughs> Professor, thanks for your comments. Have a good weekend. Thank you. All right, we're going to be uh, joined by our, our guest for the hour. Um, so uh, Lu, Dr. Lu Zhang, he's the John W. Galbath Chair Professor of Finance at the Fisher College of Business, the Ohio State University. Um, Wes was gracious enough to invite Dr. Zhang on, on with us. Wes, do you want to say any sort of personal notes before we get into some conversations? What got you thinking about Dr. Zhang, some of the research that he's focused on, uh, and sort of why you thought he'd be a great guest for the show?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think if you just go look at uh, Lou's uh, CV, it's pretty obvious that he's one of the world's experts in finance and asset pricing. And just for me personally, you know, I grew up on Fama French and kind of thought that was the gospel. And, you know, Lou and some of his colleagues, I think, opened my eyes to the whole idea of the factor wars out there. And, And he's really just, yeah, basically opened up my viewpoint on a lot of things that I thought were you know, God's truth and maybe not as much as I originally thought. So I really appreciate his, you know, what he's done intellectually and what he's brought to the table on as far as new research.
0: And we always like talking to more Wharton grad. So you were here at Wharton. He was a Wharton grad PhD class of 2002. So Dr. Zhang, Lou, welcome to our program.
3: Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, Wes, for that generous introduction.
0: No, we're we're looking forward to the chatting here. Um, so you know, Wes talked about one of your big papers uh, in the academics and, and sort of timely given what, you know, the, just the mention of Siegel and Thaler working on something called anomalies uh, back in the of uh, finance literature there. You've done a lot of work on anomalies. Maybe you can sort of give us your take. You know, you've, you've looked at all these anomalies, maybe sort of set the stage for the research that's been done in the marketplace, all these different anomalies and your sort of fresh take on whether these anomalies are really real.
3: Sure, so uh, so we have a uh, um, relatively new working paper uh, called the Replicating Anomalies," joined with my colleague wei Ho at Ohio State and Chen uh, Shui at the University of Cincinnati so in this paper it 's a pretty long paper, one hundred and forty five page long in fact. Wow. So we replicate the the bulk of the published anomalous literature in finance and accounting with in total 447 anomaly variables. We can show for microcaps this uh, stocks smaller than the 20th percentile of NYSE stocks in terms of market cap. We control for the uh, microcaps uh, by using NYSE breakpoints and value weighted returns. So, in other words, we sort all stocks on a given anomaly variable using NYSE breakpoints and then calculated high minus low uh, decile, uh, value weighted uh, decile return. And we uh, we look at that average return, if that average return is significant uh, under the traditional 5% uh, conventional 5% p-value threshold, and we consider that to be uh, replication success. But it turns out uh, in total 286 anomaly variables out of 447, or 64% of them are insignificant. In other words, 64% of them are uh, not replicated. These are false positive uh, results reported in the prior literature, and if we impose an even higher t uh, cut-off value of three advocated by uh, Harvey Liu and Sue paper, so it turns out the 380 anomaly variables are insignificant, or 85 percent of uh, anomalies are insignificant. So in other words, hey, uh,
2: Luke, yeah. quick question for you yeah. uh, before we dig into these 447 mm-hmm. factor ideas. Uh, half of which, or over half of which, doesn't sound like they're even real. How long did it take you guys to do this? Uh, Just out of curiosity, like, who who
3: was burning the midnight oil on this one? Uh, Almost uh, on and off, I think, uh, intensive work, uh, about three years. So And Chen Chen, uh, is really the engine of growth uh, behind this paper. Uh, A big shout-out for him. And uh, Chen deserves uh, a ton of the vast majority of the credit on this paper.
2: Wow. So in, in in the summarize, at least my high-level high, high level takeaway, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, just to simplify this for everyone, but it, it sounds like what you guys do that's, a, quote unquote, a little bit different, but arguably more believable, is you essentially take out all these micro caps that are essentially uninvestable And once you do that, you highlight that, hey, wait a second, is this, has historically all these factors, quote unquote, just been a, you know, a micro cap investing anomaly? Is it really a a real anomaly? And, And I think you do a very good job highlighting that, wait a second, anything that anyone would actually do in real life is, is probably not an
3: anomaly. Is that, is that a reasonable summary of what you guys are talking about? Yeah, that's a fairly reasonable interpretation of our results, uh, although we do not really get rid of microcaps. Microcaps, actually, in our sample, we just assign value weights to them. So sure. they are not uh, exercising an enormous uh, long, uh, amount of influence on our average return spreads. So that's the
0: difference between an equal-weighted basket versus a market cap. Value-weighted basket is when you do equal weight and you're going to get way overweight to small caps, yeah, way right, overweight yeah. to these micro caps. Can you talk about where micro caps are today? So you said it's the bottom, sort of sorting, it's the bottom five percentile is micro caps. Where market cap range does that get you today? You
3: oh, kn- micro caps actually actually bottom NYSE 20 percentile. So there are. Oh, bottom twenty percent. Yeah, twenty percent. There are there are lots of them. We updated uh, a table from, from a French 2008 paper, uh, table one, I think. So we updated the uh, the table and we find that uh, there are about sixty uh, percent of names, uh, right. uh, in the marketplace actually microcaps. But uh, on average, they are only about the three percent of total market cap. So they are really tiny, and at, towards the end of our sample, microcaps account for only 1.4 percent of total market cap. So this is really, really small and tiny, in fact. So Ooh. there's no way you can invest in them if you are relatively big. Hey,
2: hey, Lou, real quick question: that that 20 percentile nice cut. What what is that? That's like 250, 500 million. What what are we talking about in present terms, roughly?
3: Oh, so let's see. I, um, I, uh, the I the think it's five hundred isn't it yeah, um the specific numbers I reported in uh, in a panel in one of our figures I don't yeah. record It's the only hundred forty pages
0: you got to pull it
2: up yeah yeah i I, I know the forty percent is around two billion so yeah. and and I think just going off the top of my head you can go we can go look on french's website. I think it's probably around five hundred mil would probably be the twenty percent, so anything under five hundred million dollar market cap would be your 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 sample that you're kind of pull out of the rest of the results for the, for the most part, correct?
3: Um, just looking at the figure now, so it's 500 million.
2: Okay, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty good.
3: That's towards the end of the sample when firms are getting bigger. Historically, yep. it's way lower. Historically, it's probably 250 million-ish. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. In 1927, is probably the 90 percentile. Uh, (laughs) I've actually looked at that before.
0: Now, one of the other things um, you did, Lou, when you were breaking out, um, and I want you to talk about the big categories that you were testing, and so we could maybe high-level describe, where are the... Categories people do this anomalies research how they incorporate it into this sort of investment programs but a lot of the testing you had mentioned on on one of your presentations that you exclude financial firms and you exclude things with like negative return on equity or, or negative equity um, now you know financials and a lot of these you know on value strategies if you talk about traditional Russell value index and a lot of the anomalies are are value versus growth financials can be like a third of a value index um, so I'm just curious you know when you think about that. Academic research and excluding financials. What's the thought process behind that, and and you know do you, how, how do you think that it, it should be incorporated in people's actual investment strategies?
3: Uh, so um, we do exclude financials and firms with a uh, negative book equity. So we do so pretty much following the. Uh, um norm in empirical finance literature, but I do agree with you, financial stocks are pretty big and influential. So our thought process was that um, at the end of the day, we want to use our Q-Factor model published uh, two years ago at RFS. We want to use the Q-Factor model to explain the remaining significant anomalies. And uh, the 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 Q factor model is derived from uh, net present value rule in corporate finance. So we would think, uh, so Xandy we think uh, that, that it applies to real economy firms more than financial firms. So that's why we didn't uh, include financial stocks. Uh, we could um, we could take a look at uh, how, how incorporating financial stocks would uh, affect our results, but uh, I doubt the, the big picture news of the replicating anomalies paper would change too much.
2: <laughs> yeah. Lou, real uh, quick question for you. Have you guys looked at the uh, international results? I know the sample's not as long, but have you guys tried to do the same
3: sort of analysis in global markets at all? We are driving towards that direction. We have a work in progress uh, going on uh, titled global Q-factors. Awesome. The idea is to put the, the Q-factor model in global data. It uh, took us a long time to uh, put the data set together. The reason is that the, the, our return on equity factor, unlike the Pharma French version, uh, we do monthly source on quarterly earnings data. And the quarterly earnings data are not and not that easy to get in the global markets. So we managed to put uh, pretty comprehensive with a uh, uh, long time period as well as comprehensive sample coverage. Uh, we managed to put that data set together by using WorldScope and combined with uh, ConfuStat Global. So um, I think uh, realistically, uh, hopefully within six months, we can circulate that paper. Uh, on global Q-factors, and eventually, uh, in our view, uh, global, global data are the future for empirical mm-hmm. asset pricing. So I think, uh, like, Andrew Crowley has a paper, uh, talked about the home bias in empirical finance. Uh, basically, only 16% of the published articles use global data, 84% are all concentrated in the U.S. I guess the main hurdle is someone has to reinvest the time to get familiar yeah. with the global data set uh, we are we are we have done that fixed investment uh, going forward uh, so we're going we're going have uh, multiple papers circulated in well, due time
0: well that's awesome i mean I you know spent a lot of time doing work with Professor Siegel fifteen sixteen years ago. So very familiar with the academic papers. No, everybody uses the CRISP and CompuStat database, (laughs) the merged CRISP and CompuStat database. But then you say, like, who has the actual international data? Does, you know, even Wharton's Research Data Service, words here popular. You know, what's the international data set and availability? And it's just so expensive to get the data. It's very limited data. It's not like the CRISP-CompuStat merged database. Um, So it's good to hear you're making that investment in time and uh, hopefully making that, you know, more available for people to be able to
3: access. Yeah we will we will we will yeah, yeah. definitely that's the um, that's noted that that's what we consider to be the future for empirical finance so a lot more tests for hypotheses uh, will be will be more easily disentangled uh, using cross country data because right now we're all staring at the US we only have uh, one realization in a sense of speaking, so it's hard to distinguish the rational hypothesis from 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 alternative behavioral based hypothesis, for example
2: Hey Lou, I got a question for you. So so when you did this replication uh, You know certainly seems like a lot of the the old favorites, you know 212 cross-sectional momentum seemed to hold up uh, You know book to market just generic ones seems okay Uh, you know, kind of the standards. Uh, What are some of the other ones where where you were really surprised that actually didn't replicate, and and what were your thoughts
3: on it? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the biggest surprise to us is really the liquidity literature. So we were not anticipating that at all. Um, um, Yeah, so we we worked a little bit on liquidity uh, when we were working on our our Q-factor paper so at that time we only had the 13 variables Uh, we in that small space uh, we documented 12 of them are insignificant so but in a sense we never highlighted that evidence we thought they were just uh, an accident now once we go to 447 in total we have 102 liquidity or trading frictions more broadly or limits to arbitrage variables more broadly. And we, in fact, documented um, 93 or more than 90 percent of them uh, are uh, insignificant. In a sense, that's the biggest shock to us, and we were surprised. And uh, and these uh, variables include uh, idiosyncratic volatility, total volatility or systematic volatility, and uh, uh, other uh, price impact, for example, dollar trading volume and turnover and zero trading days and the liquidity betas. Yep. Uh, net version or uh, return to return, return to illiquidity, different versions by Acharya and Peterson, for example. And that's really the biggest shock to us.
2: So so uh, follow up on that, Lou. So if we bring us out of the academic research and try to think about how this is applicable in, in real life, it, it, would appropriate interpretation be that liquidity doesn't really pay off a premium or, or what are investors supposed to take away from kind of your finding here?
3: so wow <laughs> so in the in the debate, my view, as you probably know my view at the my view in the risk versus price pricing debate tends to be at the one extreme of the spectrum, so take that into account uh so i you know I thought I should give a fair warning so before before i tell you my interpretation, my interpretation is that uh the U.S. equity markets are relatively efficient. Uh, in limits to arbitrage—I uh, mean, only they—they lim- they take effect only in three. Uh, now going forward, only 1.4 percent of the uh, market cap uh, limits to arbitrage liquidity frictions are pretty important in, in markets like corporate bond or mortgage-backed securities. So, but in equity markets, um, not much to. Um, Take 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 much effect. So I think from a from a, from a from a practical perspective, um, we do replicate it, uh, Many of the classic anomalies of factor premiums like value, momentum, investment, and different versions of, of profitability It's actually good news. Well, good and bad news for asset management. I guess the bad news is that not a whole lot of free lunches around. Yeah. So uh, the the, the investable uh, space is not. Not as wide as once we thought it to be. Uh, not uh, not that many naive investors around for professionals to take advantage of. So on the other hand, uh, we do have a much more positive insight to communicate to managers. So um, uh, in a sense that uh, a lot of these factor premiums, uh, classic factor premiums, they are real, they are persistent. No matter how many arbitrage uh, trades placed on them they are there. Why is that? Because they are equilibrium phenomena. So you are never going to arbitrage them away. So that's actually a tremendous, tremendously positive news for for, for, for for asset managers. So in a sense, the market factor is only one of several, probably many dimensions in the cross-section, and there's plenty of room for quantum managers in a relatively relatively efficient capital markets in terms of helping investors achieve better risk-return trade-off because, you know, you never want to just hold the S&P 500 index alone. There are multiple dimensions of risk-return trade-offs you need to load on.
0: Very good. This we're talking with Dr. Lu Zhang, Professor of Finance at the Fisher College of Business at the Ohio State University, talking about his academic research on factor investing, replicating anomalies, where he's finding a lot of academics are publishing studies that he actually cannot replicate when he put together this three year study of four hundred and forty seven different anomalies uh lou when you just you know we're talking about the market pricing versus sort of risk scenario you know for for the people deep in the weeds on the academics they might understand what you mean by that but maybe step back and 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 go through for the people listening on serious does that mean um sort of market pricing versus risk phenomena and and sort of you you said like you want to caveat with your views maybe you could give your your views in that discussion
3: uh, oh wow um, uh, take one step back so there's been long standing academic debate on the potential driving forces of these anomalies or all, all factors now the line has blurred big time so in the earliest days uh, people always used the CAPM capital asset pricing model version as the as the, the expected return model and even earlier than that and people were using people were using constant discount rate as the expected return model. So the second, uh, past information can be used to forecast future returns. For example, if you use book-to-market to, future f- to forecast future returns, oftentimes that cannot be captured by the CAPM or constant discount rate is automatically rejected. So a lot of people uh, interpret that as, um, as overreaction or a momentum. In the case of a momentum, it's underreaction or, in, a- in other words, pricing errors are being forecastable. Pricing errors are forecastable, and that's a violation of efficient market hypothesis. That's a violation of Muth and Lucas, Uh, uh, Joe Muth and Bob Lucas' uh, Russian expectations hypothesis. But over the years, we uh, academics have developed um, uh, different uh, different asset pricing models now (laughs) Uh, in the time series. So we have a Campbell cochrane model and Benson Yaron model and uh, and disaster model, and uh, all these models can... Predict time-varying expect returns. In other words, the stock market the risk premiums uh, are, are, are predictable. So similarly, uh, my line of work, my body of literature. So I've been, I've been, I've been trying to explore um, a new class of asset pricing models. What I call the investment CAPM. So basically, the investment model predicts cross-sectionally. Varying expect returns. So, in other words, value stocks are supposed to have higher expect returns than growth stocks going forward. So, and then that's the that's the debate. So, the debate is about coming up with uh, better versions of expect return models. Well, coming back, uh, I mean, maybe I should uh, take one step uh, back further. Realized returns equal expect returns plus abnormal returns. Yeah. It's an it's, it's a, a, accounting identity. So if you use book-to-market to forecast future realized returns, automatically there are two parallel interpretations. One interpretation is that book-to-market is being used to forecast future offers, abnormal returns, and that's the original lekon shok Visiony interpretation going way back and grand and dot interpretation in their security analysis. You want to buy undervalued security. Uh, however, based on the accounting identity, realized returns equal expect return plus abnormal returns. Another interpretation is that book to market is somehow correlated, is somehow part of the expect return. Now, for a long time, that model did not exist. So for a long time, we didn't know how book-to-market or profitability or investment or all the other normally variables or momentum are related to expect return uh, because in the consumption cap-m and sharp little classic cap-m, and even consumption cap-m, which is more broader um, umbrella framework for traditional asset pricing. The so firm characteristics are not even modeled. Book-to-market doesn't show up. In the representative agent optimal A, uh, model. So, but the, but then model. Um, but now we have that model. Now it's what I call the investment cap and It's based on the mpv rule. All so these firm characteristics actually show up in expected returns. Sorry. Lou, go ahead. Yeah. Th-
2: this is Wes here. L- let me just try to uh, break this down here with uh, an applied example. Yeah. So, you, as you mentioned, you go back to the Construct Cipher visiony, Kind of the debate is okay. On one hand. The reason value stocks are in higher expected returns is because they're riskier. On the other hand, you know, the market basically throws the baby out with the bathwater. It's never as bad as people thought. There's a a change in expectations, and value stocks win because there was a mispricing. Now, let's step forward to today. So we have a stock like Best Buy, or or pretty much any stock that's in the warpath of Amazon right now would, would traditionally be called, like, a cheap stock. Clearly there's a risk component, right? You're in Amazon's path. But there's also the argument, back to LSV argument, that, well, we know on average the history of value investing is, well, everyone's just throwing the baby out the bathwater. And to the extent that Best Buy is not as bad as expected because whatever, Amazon gets regulated by the government or who knows, we're in that that abnormal premium. That's another hypothesis. Tell me how Best Buy's current pricing or any of these securities – in expectation, should earn higher returns, but it's unrelated to this mispricing or "throw the baby out with the bathwater" phenomenon.
3: Well, so um, so far, what we have claimed in our academic work, or what uh, what we think is true in the data, is never to show. It's that the objective is never has been. Has never been to show mispricing doesn't exist in the data. So, uh, so I actually believe uh, the investment capm or the investment model and the, and the mispricing are just uh, two alternative uh, hypotheses uh, for, for the same set of data. So I think um, I think uh, I mean yeah. So I mean, uh, best buy may as well be an example of mispricing. So I think going forward, based on large sample uh, studies and uh, staring at the U.S. data alone is uh, kind of hard to disentangle the two uh, sets of competing hypotheses. We need to go to international data, to mm-hmm. cross-country studies. So um, I'm aware of um, Table, for example. So uh, in, in one of uh, Sheridan Titman's uh, journal finance paper published in 2010, in which he, he's not alone, and other people have documented similar evidence, including his colleague John Griffin uh, at UT Austin. So basically the Table shows that uh, momentum profits. Yeah, The momentum is one of the most uh, celebrated uh, anomalies in the behavioral finance literature. So the standard interpretation is on reaction. But mm-hmm. uh, his table shows that momentum profits are stronger in developed markets than in emerging markets. In the U.S. market, for example, average price momentum winner minus loser return is 79 basis points per month, and highly significant t-stat 3.4. But if you look at China, it's only 26 basis points, and t-stat is below one. I'm just using U.S. and China as examples, and there are many other developed countries. So momentums are stronger, momentum profits are stronger in U.K. and Switzerland, Sweden, Australia, and the much weaker in merchant markets. Overall, we are looking at the 86 basis points versus 49 basis points per month. So, so, so I mean, if you if you subscribe to the behavioral interpretation, if you talk about the unsophisticated, the mom and pop. Naive investor, mom-and-pop shops, naive investors, right? They are plentiful in China, relatively few in the U.S. If you think about the limits to arbitrage, there are many of them. You cannot shop sale in China. In the U.S., developed market, you can do that. So if you subscribe to the behavioral interpretation, momentum profits ought to be way stronger in China, but the, but the evidence is exact opposite. But uh, but I think uh, I think the evidence is actually consistent uh, with, the, with the with the investment model. Uh, but uh, we need to we need to we need to uh, strengthen our argument big time by doing large scale, uh, large sample econometric work. So right now it's just a piece of anecdotal evidence.
0: Very good, Lu- Dr. Uh, Dr. Zayn, we're going to be back. We have to take a quick break. We'll um, give you a few minutes to, to get some more thoughts together. We're, we're talking with Dr. Lu Zhang, uh, the professor of finance at the Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University. We've got Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, you're listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 111. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha
2: Architect, and you're listening to a special edition of Behind the Markets podcast.
0: Welcome back to Behind the Markets and it's here at XM One Eleven. I'm your host Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. In the studio with me, I've got Wesley Gray, CEO of Alf Architect, we're doing our joint podcast radio show here. Um, we're talking with Dr. Lu Zhang, the Professor of Finance at the Fisher College of Business at the Ohio State University. We're talking about his research on factor investing, replicating anomalies, where he's finding generally that. A lot of academic research just can't be replicated when he goes back and puts it through the stress test. Um, We went pretty deep in the weeds, Lou, on the first part on a lot of the the finance uh, anomalies. And maybe we'll get back to some of that. But maybe talk this idea of replication studies generally. You know, in one of your presentations, you talk about how this is a phenomenon that's going beyond finance that you're seeing this in in other genres. Uh, Maybe talk about just this replicating um, line of research that's happening.
3: Yeah, so sure. So, um, the replication movement, uh, was really initiated by a Stanford medical school professor called John Ioannidis. Uh, Ioannidis published, uh, influential, extremely influential article in 2005 in Plus Medicine, uh, in which he uses, uh, theoretical argument, analytical model. <laughs> Basically, he argues that, uh, most published research findings are false under most research designs and in most fields. So at first glance, and uh, when I read the article, I was like, hmm, this is a pretty uh, provocative piece, um, yeah. aiming, aimed at uh, grabbing attention. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, uh, in the decade or so after his argument, uh, there has been, uh, there has been the replication crisis has been sweeping through the scientific, uh, different scientific scientific fields, and uh, for example, Baker, uh, 2016 article uh, published in a prestigious journal in Science called Nature. So uh, basically, Nature conducted a survey that consists of 1,500 or so scientists in different fields. So, more than half of them, 52% of them, believe there exists a significant crisis of replication. 38% believe there exists a slight crisis, and only 3% of them think, no, there's no problem, so we replicate each other all the time, no. And the 7% said don't know. So, in other words, 80% of surveyed scientists believe there exists um replication crisis basically what we thought we knew were not true <laughs> so and uh, and uh, the, over the years has there has been several high profile replication failures so in cancer research for example beckley and ellis 2012 article in Nature. So um, MGM, Glenn Beckley was uh, a lead scientist in MGM and the biopharmaceutical company headquartered in California. So MGem before they wanted to invest billions of dollars developing cancer drugs, so their scientists set out to replicate uh, 56 considered to be landmark. Uh, studies in on uh, oncology, and they managed to replicate only six of them. So the eleven percent replication rate was actually pretty disappointing to everybody, and uh, and social psychology as well. So and oftentimes uh, their their effect is pretty hard to detect. And I remember there was. Uh, Study uh, several years ago, um, claiming to have documented evidence on precognition, and turns out later on, people replicate uh, the study's experiment and fail to find anything significant. So, um, so finance and economics uh, also economics, in a sense, was uh, ahead of finance in terms of taking replication very seriously. So, in the May 2017, just this year, May issue of American Economic Review. Uh, there are six or seven uh, studies devoted uh, exclusively to replication, and uh, and we are following uh, their lead, actually. And in finance, and I mentioned that Cam uh, Harvey's work early on yeah. at the RFS, and this year at his, at his presidential address, um, appeared in Journal Finance, and uh, we uh, we we are building on his prior work. And in terms of taking uh, replication very seriously in I, finance,
0: I can't help but thinking through my mind right now. Wes, fake research, <laughs> you have, fake news, fake research—it's everywhere, man.
3: Yeah, in a sense, this is a big move. We are part of the big movement uh, called uh, Meta Science Studies, uh, Science of Science, in a sense. So academics, scientists are human beings too. We respond to incentives. Uh, When pressure, publication pressure is high, when the training in statistics is not as strong as we had hoped, and uh, when your career is on the line and the line is oftentimes not clear, so what is... uh, in a sense the line is ambiguous in the sense that uh, we know there are uh, publication various forms of publication biases in academic journals and editors and referees want to publish significant results because uh, more significant results make a bigger splash and presumably higher impact. So as a result, uh, you know, we tend to focus on documenting new factors and new results as opposed to uh, making sure uh, the existing body of scientific literature is as solid as we can make it to be.
0: Wes, you do a lot of research on factors and value and momentum strategies and value and momentum are two of the styles that uh, Dr. Zhang sort of rigorously tested here to see if any of this research was fake research. Um, do you? Did anything he show here change your way of thinking? of your value and momentum factors, did it get you to re-question whether value and momentum are real? You know, not really. We, we've basically done, like, for, in, for
2: many intents and, and purposes, the same sort of analysis, because we're actually going to put our own money up to bat here. And I think, in, and Lou, you can correct me if you're wrong, but, like, in, in our momentum, we kind of go with the standard 2.12, and then we use that frog-in-the-pan algorithm as well. But just from reading frog that... frog in the pen. Uh, frog in the pan
0: momentum. The pan. Like,
2: it's it's kind of like uh, you, you have it in there as well, um, like like alpha momentum or, or idiosyncratic momentum. Like it's basically mm. a similar concept. And, and I know you, you were able to replicate those, um, so that that was good to hear. And mm. then uh, and then on the value side, like we're we're big fans of enterprise multiples, and you know they mm. seem to, you know not not getting into the what explains it, but just absolutely does this thing earn higher expected returns than. You know than other stuff, it, it seemed to replicate well. Right. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is that fair summary?
3: Yeah, it's uh, we 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 have replicated the uh, value and the momentum uh, factors, and they are real. They are persistent. <laughs> they are not going away. So I think uh, that's actually pretty good news. Yeah. For now here's a the question
2: way. for you, Lou. Go ahead. You're going to try to compound your money high over the long haul. What, what and you have to pick one of these factors what are you investing in you got 20 years to compound well i
3: um, uh, taking well i I, I, I tend to take my work seriously and oftentimes uh, self-mock all the time so uh, I mock myself all the time so uh, if, uh, if I if I take the uh, lessons um, in our Q-factor model uh, seriously I would buy high ROE firms and low investment firms right names that uh, names that have higher profitability uh, but for whatever reasons, they are not investing a whole lot. And the standard MPV argument in corporate finance would tell us those names have high cost of equity, going forward, meaning high expect returns.
0: So, so, so describe what the investment factor means. Um, a lot of people, you know, in, in, in this finance literature, you got value, which is just buying cheap stocks. You got momentum, stocks that are rising. Describe mm. what investments are for the lay layperson listening.
3: Yeah, sure. So, so the investment factor uh, is constructing a way that is very similar to the value factor. So basically you interact the book to market with size and you buy value stocks and sell growth stocks. And that's how you form the value factor, HML, um, in Pharma Francis' work, for example. The investment factor, it uh, can be done analogously. So you sort the stocks on real investment. For example, you can measure real investment that's uh, total asset growth, the annual growth rate of book assets. And you again interact that with size or market cap. And then you buy low investment firms, and uh, you go short on, on high investment firms. And that's how you form the investment factor.
0: And, and the idea here is uh, conservative minus aggressive is the Fama-French terminology CMA right, factor, right, right. if people have seen it. Uh, and the CMA is the firms that are rapidly expanding their asset growth. They're sort of over overdoing it, and they don't get paid off on this sort of empire building that
3: they're doing. That's not exactly our interpretation. Okay. So um, uh, the interpretation you quoted actually is not due to Pharma French. Um, it's actually due to uh, Titman, Way, and Shear, 2004, uh, Journal, f- uh, the a GFQA paper. So, and uh, and what we are saying is actually uh, net present value rule, so in corporate finance. What that means is that uh, uh, firms keep taking projects, real projects, until the costs of investing in these projects are equal to the present value of these projects. Now, simplify our lives a little bit. Think about only two-period period, two projects, today and tomorrow. Today, you pay the investment costs to take the project. Next period, the project will pay out and give you some cash flows, and you assign some discount rate. Okay? And the, the, the cash flow divided by discount rate would be the present value of the project, and the, the present value minus investment cost today is going to be the net present value. So basically in corporate finance, uh, we teach MBA students to take a positive MPV projects. So if they keep doing that, uh, in actuality, and that the last project they take is going to have MPV being zero, because at the beginning they always take a positive MPV projects. The last project they take is going to be uh, zero MPV. So in other words, investment costs equal future cash flow, divided by discount rate, and that's corporate finance, and we are turning it around as, uh, to use that equation as, as a pricing model. So, in other words, discount rate equals cash flow divided by investment costs, mm. and investment costs uh, increase in investment. In other words, uh, discount rate increases with the future profitability and decreases with the current investment level. And that's uh, that's that's how we organize our thoughts
0: around this thing. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking doc- with Dr. Lu Zhang of Ohio State University. Wes, I interrupted, but I want to get the reset in there. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, Lou, I was just going
2: to do a uh, kind of a follow up. So, because I find this fascinating. So, so you uh, doing all this research, spent three years replicating everything. You know, thinking probably longer and harder about you know, all these factors than than most, you would recommend in your own capital for a 20-year horizon to try to compound at a high, high rate or the highest you could in expectation. You would buy, you would literally build a factor portfolio that would be high return on equity firms that also simultaneously have low investment, hold that basket, rebalance once a year, and have a nice life. Now, what's interesting is I know of no product out there that does that, so correct me if I'm wrong, should there be a product that does that, or can people buy surrogates
0: that... Essentially, do well, that. That's not exactly. I mean, the quality indexes today right. focus on return on equity. I right. do some things that focus on that. Do you do low investment though? Um, they tend to be negatively correlated to the investment. They 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 end up there. Um, sure, not not directly though. But you you got me thinking about. It. I got to incorporate. And that what about?
2: Screen. And this is something that I know is controversial, Lou, because yeah. you basically say the value factor doesn't exist once you control for this. But but mechanically, yeah. what's the difference between buying cheap stuff? That's high quality, quote unquote, high return on equity um, versus like not even considering price or cheapness and, and doing your portfolio sorts. Like mechanically, you're going to usually get in the same spot.
3: Uh, yeah, I would think so, uh, because in our conceptual setup um, the ROE is one of the premier quality index that uh, that folks talk about in industry, right? And our investment factor is actually a substitute for the value factor uh, because. Uh, uh, the economic linkage is that um, high Tobin's Q firms invest more. Uh, in our economic model, is actually one to one. So, so basically, uh, basically what I just recommended, buying high ROE firms and uh, and low investment firms, is actually equivalent to buy high quality value firms.
2: Hmm. Got it. And then there's just intellectual arguments on. That you guys have uh, I guess in the academic research <laughs> that the low investment is a is a is better tied to economic theory than just the cheapness characteristic
3: right, gotcha, yeah, because investment is in a sense a fundamental variable, right, so it yeah. ties up nicely to the a tremendous uh, fundamental analysis literature uh, pioneered by O and Penman, 1989. So Steve, Steve, Steve Penman has been uh, has been a very instrumental in developing the fundamental movement in accounting and in academia. He's really a founding father in that field. So he basically put the grand dot security analysis uh, in 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 academia. Yeah.
0: So, you know, where would you say the adoption? I mean, I see a lot of people looking at the five factor model from Fama French. Where would you say this four factor that you look at the Q factor model is in sort of adoption? I mean, is this the this is the model? If you were me looking at people's portfolios, you'd always be evaluating their factor sensitivity to those four factors. Is that is that really what you would do?
3: Yeah. So in fact, uh, while I uh, respect former French tremendously, and that goes without saying, and the fact that I spent a big chunk of past uh, eight years um, holding my side of the conversation, oftentimes not exactly easy, and oftentimes can be quite painful, uh, but it is what it is, and this is how scientific research is, is supposed to be done, I guess. So, but uh, if you look, if you look at the uh, the scientific evidence, in fact, the uh, spending tests. The Q-factor model subsumes the phi-factor model, but, the, but the, uh, RMW, CMA, for example, their offers in the Q-factor regressions are 1 and 4 basis points per month, and T-stats are below 0.5. Uh, whereas uh, if you regress our investment and ROE factors uh, in the Pharma French five-factor model, and our, our offers are significantly positive. We're, looking, we're talking about the, the, our investment factor is 12 basis points, and T-stats 3.4-ish, and our ROE factor is even bigger, alpha. Uh, in terms of alpha, 45 basis points, and that's 5.6. So, in other words, uh, um, the Q-factor model uh, captures the five-factor model, and the the the, the opposite is not true. I mm. guess, uh, you know, I, I don't want to speculate, but I guess that may be uh, the reason why uh, in their recent publication they are using UMD. They are adding momentum factor to their uh, five-factor model to form a four-factor, uh, a six-factor. Excuse me. And going forward, and we are, uh, we are. Uh uh, we our plan is to do a more comprehensive comparison of new factor models and using the new uh, Q factor model to compare with the with their five as well as their six factor models.
0: Now, are you so I use the uh, Farmer French website, you know, a lot, and they I go to their website and download those four <laughs> factors, five factors, three factors. Are you publishing? And I apologize that I don't know this answer. Are you right. publishing these Q factor models updated every month, updated every quarter, that people can take that data, run the regressions themselves? If they want to utilize your dad? is that something you're doing?
3: Uh, not yet. You should um, please. Uh, uh, well, uh, right now, right now, uh, every time uh, we received an email request from people, we always supplied our factors data.
0: Okay. Well, I'm going to I'm going to email you later, but put it on your website every month. <laughs>
3: uh, well, well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. we will. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm all for uh, transparency in scientific research, there and that's that said. Uh, that said, um, uh, we are we are we are the underdog in a big uh, intellectual debate, and uh, and um, and we want to we want to make sure, uh, especially our replicating anomalies paper. Uh, in replicating anomalies paper, we actually extended the Q factors data backwards from 72 to 67. That involves a set of uh, procedures, and we want to make sure we do not want to uh, we, we do we survive right. yeah. the rigorous um, editorial process before before we give uh, folks uh, the the, the, the Q, uh, b- before we put our Q factors data online because uh, if we had to change because we do not have full control of mm-hmm. our own paper um, due to the editorial process we always have to listen to editors what editors and referees tell us to do and uh, in good faith of course and we just we don't want to change all the time I guess that's what we're saying. That's fair. One thing I I wanted to make this clear, because
2: this is obviously a confusing conversation here. (laughs) You you make the statement that the markets are efficient. And I know a lot of people out there are going to be say, great, that means go buy the S&P 500 index fund because no one can, quote, unquote, beat the market or do anything better than that. But I want to make it clear to the audience that your research does not say that at all. In fact, your research says if you want to earn higher returns, which will have a corresponding additional risk, you want to do what Warren Buffett does: buy cheap, quality companies, not necessarily by the SP 500. So, can you just explain final minute, too, guys? Well, last that the minute that, countdown. that you're yeah. when you say the market's efficient, that doesn't imply. The only option is buy the SP 500, but it just means you've got to pick your risk return trade off across the spectrum of these different portfolios.
3: Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, Wes, very well put. So basically, uh, decades of academic research uh, has established uh, quite uh, convincingly to everybody, actually, uh, that the market factor is not the mean variance efficient. The market factor is only one of several. And we're debating how many, um, you know, could be many dimensions uh, in the in the cross-sectional variation of expected stock returns. Meaning, uh, if you just want an S&P 500 index alone, you are not uh, being very efficient. So the point is that we live in a multi-factor world. So uh, if you take the Q-Factor model at face value, and we have, uh, we have the market factor, the investment factor, the profitability factor, and in fact, the three of us are exploring a new factor called expected growth factor, expected investment Okay, Dr.
0: Zhang, we got to wrap it up here. Thank you so much. Great. Wes, thanks for joining us in the studio again. Dr. Zhang, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Uh, have a great week, everybody. You can also listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer. Producer, Senator Daniel Bruno. We'll talk to you next week. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets Podcast.